G'day mate, how's it going? I'm Matthew Frost and welcome to Fully Scored Live, but not actually live due to some technical difficulties. Apologies about that. Um, but that doesn't stop it from being, tonight, a Down Under special. When I found out who the guests were for this episode of Fully Scored, I thought, good on ya, beauty mate, you little ripper. Therefore, this Arvo, we're stoked to welcome two of Australia's greatest salvo musos, after Harold Bishop from Neighbours. Uh, we welcome Bandmaster Ken Walsworth and Barry Gott, both of whom are top blokes, and I know we're defo in for a fair dinkin' bonzer time. <laughs> Crikey! If you miss out on this, you'll be spewing and you'll spit the dummy. So grab yourself a Tin Tam or some other tucker, and no, we're not talking about the Eric Larson Cormit solo, and make sure you visit the dummy. And settle down, you're in for a rip-snorter of an elbow. Ken, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast tonight. Welcome um, all the way from Australia. Well, that was quite an introduction, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you missed anything. You missed like, you, you covered the whole lot in one hit there. Well done. <laughs> Great stuff. So, and um, first met you about, I think it was seven years ago. In fact, I know it was seven years ago because I was in your band at the Territorial Music yeah, Store. I, I, see, I see the shirt there, yes, 2013 when I was at TMS. Yes. Second, second chair, solo corner? Uh, I believe so, yes. Second chair, how's that, eh? Oh, very, yeah, very, you've got a better memory than me, almost. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, without further ado, let's commence our interview. So, sure. first of all, uh, apologies for the time difference. Um, I know it, it was, it's about half six in the morning for you, so thank <laughs> you ever so much for getting up and, and for joining us. I'm looking so, so awake. <laughs> First of all, could you tell us a little bit about where you're from, uh, where you were born and where you grew up? Yes, well, um, born here in Melbourne, um, a little inner suburb of Melbourne, Moreland, at the Vaucluse Hospital is where I was born and uh, grew up uh, in around Melbourne. Mum and Dad uh, uh, built a house out in uh, a suburb called Rosanna in the north sort of the east of Melbourne, and probably... Uh, I suppose 10 or 12 miles out of Melbourne, the central. Um, and so they built a house there and I, that's where I, uh, I grew up. And uh, since then, sort of lived in the similar sort of area, bought houses myself in the same sort of area. So very much been a Melbourne boy uh, all my life. Mr. Melbourne, we'll call you from now on. <laughs> so what are some of your first memories of the Salvation Army? Uh, I, I suppose that very early memories interestingly enough my grandmother was the primary leader at the core at Moreland where I grew up so I can remember going to primary with my grandma being the leader um silly things like that I suppose I can remember on a Sunday evening you know racing out to see the band march back uh from their open air uh with the the uh the gas lanterns and all that sort of thing. Um, they, were, they were fun days. Um, I, my early rec recollections of, of going to YP practices um, was, was good. Probably the, the thing that stood out was going over to the milk bar after the, the rehearsal to get my Blue Heaven milkshake. That was a big thing when I was in the YP band. What is a Blue Heaven milkshake? Oh, I, I can't remember really. It was, <laughs> it was, it was sort of a... Uh, a mix of, of, of different sort of flavours, really. It was a bit of a mixture, uh, I suppose. But uh, 
I just remember that's what we used to get. I think it was the YPSM of the day, Elf War, who actually paid for us all. He'd go over and he'd, he'd pay for us all, have a milkshake at the end of the night, which we really enjoyed as young kids. Living the dream. And it's really interesting that you mentioned the open air in some of your first uh, recollections. Lots of our guests have mentioned very similar things, obviously sticks in people's minds. So you're a euphonium player now. Have you always been a euphonium player? Pretty much. Um, I started off like all young boys uh, at the age of, I think, nine or ten, I think, uh, learning the cornet. Um, we had a really good little junior band, um, probably, I imagine, probably 2025 20, uh, in the junior band uh, in my day. And so uh, I started on cornet. I uh, then uh, went on to horn because we needed a horn player. And I, I suppose uh, by about 13, I think, I went on to euphonium. And so uh, that was probably my instrument that I fell in love with, probably from the age of around 13. And was, that, was there a particular person that's motivated you as a player or that inspired you to play? Obviously, my father, Robin, um, he was a keen bandsman and an encouraging father. He, he joined the Melbourne Star Band himself back in 1963. But um, there's probably two people, I think, for me, um, that had a fairly significant influence. Um, um, one of the uh, really, really uh, encouraging things my dad did was send me off for private lessons. Um, that, in my time, that wasn't something that happened a lot in the Salvation Army, but I uh, went off to private lessons with a guy by the name of Ken Smith. Um, even some of the English people may know of Ken. Ken actually was a New Zealander. He, um, he was the New Zealand Cornet champion and actually went across and spent some time in England playing with the Ferry Aviations Band with Wilf Mountain of the time. Um, he ended up back in Melbourne, and from about the age of uh, 13 to 18, I had lessons with him. Um, and so that was certainly a, a significant influence. The other person I suppose I should mention is my, my cousin, David Harvey. Um, David, obviously, and I grew up at the same core together. David's about 10 years older than I am. Um, so, um, and he'd certainly, in, um, in his early 20s, had established himself, certainly in the Salvation Army, as one of the finest euphonium players in, in our country. And so I um, really uh, looked up to him. He joined the staff band as not long after I started playing euphonium. So I, I absolutely loved uh, listening to David and had opportunity to listen to him lots of times. And I wanted to play like David Harvey when I was a young kid, that's for sure. So now coming up to date a little bit more, you now currently attend the Box Hill Corps. Yep. What's life like for a Salvationist at the Box Hill Corps? Well, at the moment, it's exciting times because uh, despite, obviously, it's all being in lockdown, but we're, we're in the process of uh, heading towards a new new venue. Uh, they've been able to uh, get a prime site right on the, the main road of, of Whitehorse Road there in Box Hill, right alongside the town hall. Brand new facility just being built. So we're looking really looking forward to that. Um, but, yeah, there's a strong expression of music ministry at the core. Um, the Korean ministry is very strong. And the obvious uh, involvement in community outreach and support um, still is very much part of what happens at the day-to-day the -day life of, of Box Hill Salvation Army. Very exciting stuff indeed. So, 1979, you joined the Melbourne Staff Band as a player. Yep. What are some of your earliest memories and fondest memories of being in the band as a player? Yes, I, um, as I said, my dad joined the band in 63. So... Um, from a very young age, I was a, a strong supporter and uh, uh, of the MSB uh, and lived and breathed it myself as a kid. 
Um, but then to actually join the band, uh, I was certainly in awe of, of some of the guys that I'd idolised as a young boy to actually play in the same band as them was, was quite a, an amazing experience. Um, I certainly felt inadequate as a player. Um, but one of the exciting things when I joined, of course, David Harvey, my idol, was the principal euphonium. So for three or four years, I actually got to sit alongside him. It was pretty exciting. Um, I think anyone who joined the staff band in my era uh, will remember the uh, wonderful bandmaster Colin Woods that we had. Um, he was a wonderful encourager and actually still is up till today. We, we catch up and uh, he's always been encouraging. But in those early years, he was very scary, very scary. Um, I do recollect one occasion, uh, as, as you'd appreciate, that when you went into a, the players, a, into the band's a new player, the band would already have repertoire that they're already performing and you'd have to jump in and obviously play what was on the, on the stand. I remember I first went in and the band was playing uh, Eric Ball's Sound Out the Proclamation. Now, it's a real old one. I don't know whether you know that one, that one Matthew. But down towards the bottom, there's a, a little two-bar phrase that uh, leaves the euphonium section high and dry by themselves. Um, I, I, I did okay the first couple of times, but we were heading off to a weekend in Brisbane and it hadn't been going too well, so Colin decided to have a quick rehearsal and went down the line uh, on these two bars. And the more he went down the line with me, the more we did it, the worse it got. Um, so that was a pretty ex scary experience. And I'm sure that many bands have been subjected to that sort of uh, approach by bandmasters over the years. Terrifying indeed. But of course, moving on from that, you built up an excellent uh, reputation as being a soloist. Um, do you have a favourite solo that you've always loved to perform? I, it should be stated here, Matthew, I'm well and truly my, past my best as a euphonium soloist, uh, certainly don't uh, play anywhere near as much as I used to and wished I could, actually. Um, but certainly um, euphonium solos, um, interesting, obviously, would, um, to hear, obviously, of the passing of Norman Bearcroft. Um, every euphonium player wanted to play The Better World, um, so I enjoyed the opportunity to do that. Robert Redhead, uh, Euphony, um, Stephen Buller's Rhapsody uh, for euphonium. But I think probably the one that stood out for me personally was a solo written by Bill Himes, uh, Journey Into Peace. Um, it was probably one of the first main major solos I played with the band. Um, it wasn't necessarily technically demanding, beautiful lyrical music, um, uh, but I really enjoyed the story, uh, the story of the music. I used the, uh, the tune, All Your Anxiety, All Your Care, Bring to the Mercy Seat, Leave It There. Um, it was really a, a real spiritual journey. And I suppose I, I really enjoyed playing that because of the, the story that the, the, the piece was telling. So again, moving forward again a few years, you became the bandmaster in 1994. How did yeah. you feel about this transition from a player to the bandmaster? Were you ever nervous or did it all just slot into place quite naturally? Oh, interestingly enough that... Um, I had a period of 12 months out of the band after I, before I took on uh, the role of bandmaster. Um, I had a period of 12 months out of the band. And as it turned out, probably that was a good thing. Uh, it just gave me that slight bit of separation, not having to necessarily just get out, out of the euphonium seat and conduct. Um, so I, that, that probably helped me a bit, um, I think. Uh, the, um, interesting enough, I, I had, never, had never been a core bandmaster. 
before I took on the band. So they were probably taking, for many, probably thought taking quite a risk. Um, a lot of my conducting experience and training was outside the Salvation Army. And uh, so really, um, that's uh, how it all happened. Um, I was confident, I suppose, um, that I was up for the job, um, humbled by the opportunity, um, but certainly challenged by the responsibility of taking on such a, an important leadership uh, role in the uh, music ministry of the Salvation Army here in Australia. Great stuff. In your time as the conductor of the MSB, uh, you've worked and performed with many world-class soloists, uh, just to name a couple, James Morrison, Sylvie Palladino, and therefore engaging listeners that perhaps wouldn't naturally choose to listen to a brass band, maybe. What sort of reaction have you um, got to these occasions? The, uh, certainly the opportunity for the band uh, to perform with professional artists such as James and Sylvie and, and, and many others has been really very inspiring for me personally as a musician. And, and for the band as well. Um, it really, I think for us as the staff band, it really gave us an opportunity for ministry at the highest level. Uh, having those supporting us, I think was pretty special. Um, we often would have wonderful response. And I think one of the significant things about having those sort of artists is it connected us to audiences outside the Salvation Army. And so ministry became even more important to us with a, a, an audience that possibly didn't uh, journey on the, uh, the faith journey that uh, we all did, but our opportunity to sort of share our faith through those opportunities was pretty special. So the Melbourne Staff Band have a reputation for their choreography in concerts, quite different to a lot of the other staff bands. Yes. Why for you is it important that the bands mix things up a bit from the norm by doing this choreography? I have to say, from the beginning of when I when I took on the band uh, as bandmaster, um, I was encouraged um, that they were always very supportive. Um, if they could see we were trying to do ministry well, they were on board. Um, and despite for the choreography sort of stuff, despite a few of them sort of having two left feet, um, they came on board because they, I think, very quickly appreciated the connection it was making with the audiences. Um, as you said, um, it was fairly significant um, towards the end of the uh, the, the uh, choreography routines we did. You know, the guys were memorising 40 minutes of music um, as well as movement and that, that sort of thing. Um, so it was a, a, a significant commitment. Um, and they, But they appreciated, particularly when we're in, in the performance, that uh, it was really connecting and making an impact on the audience. So that they were supportive. Right, and it's great to hear that, that the band's reaction was really positive to it. Uh, I cool. have to say, I'd find it challenging because someone asked me to memorise that much music. <laughs> It'd be a real challenge. But um, just for those bandsmen that maybe didn't appreciate it as much, whose idea was it so they know who to blame? <laughs> well, I, it's, it actually came out of... Uh, the band was asked to uh, perform at a military tattoo. Um, and certainly we hadn't done a lot of this, that sort of thing before. So I actually got one of the guys from the Australian Army Band to help us... Uh, work out this marching routine for the uh, tattoo. Um, at the same sort of time, someone actually gave me a DVD, uh, which was called Blast. I don't know whether any of your viewers would have seen it. It was a, uh, a show, a, a theatre show that was done in Chicago with um, professional musicians and movement on stage. It was spectacular, spectacular. Um, so I suppose I said to myself, ah, there's an idea. 
Um, so the guy, uh, Mike Fitzpatrick in the Australian Army Band, uh, who helped us with the military tattoo, then sat with me and we worked out how we could possibly do something similar uh, on the stage. Um, I have to say, over the years, uh, many uh, people, certainly in the, in the UK and the US, where we've, we did the routine, um, didn't necessarily find it too easy to find venues that were able to uh, house us for those sort of concerts. Um, but certainly uh, they've been well received and uh, that's sort of how it all came about. So I suppose the bandmaster has to take the blame. Great stuff. Um, now, perhaps quite a tricky question here, but if you had to summarise in one sentence what the mission of the Melbourne Staff Band is, what would that sentence be? For us in the Staff Band, I would say um, we, we say that we exist to extend the kingdom of God and to encourage other Christians in their faith and ministry. And we really try to do that by setting standards um, in the presentation of the gospel of, uh, and certainly in both, both music and in spoken word. Great. A long sentence, but a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so part of the, the work that the Melbourne Staff Band do is they do a lot of recordings and have recorded many CDs, albums, cassettes, LPs over the years. If you had to pick a favourite one that you've been involved with, what would it be? Yeah, you're right, Matthew. Um, we have produced many CDs and I suppose uh, some probably uh, I don't necessarily remember uh, readily. Um, I, I should say that I, one of the things that I did um, when I took over the band, um, I made the point of really uh, getting Ted Marshall from Canada over to re, uh, be the engineer for our recordings. Um, I, th I felt certainly that um, earlier on, possibly, I, I never felt that the, the recordings did the band justice. Uh, and so felt that by getting out someone like Ted, uh, who was a real brass band nut, uh, an NGO with the Canadian Broadcasting, Broadcasting Commission and all that sort of stuff, um, we'd really get quality. And so I really, uh, really valued Ted and he was a real uh, really well loved by the band and the recordings he produced for us. Um, the first recording I suppose um, stands out for me uh, being the first that I did with the band as, as the bandmaster was in total of the present age um, and I suppose that stood out. It, um, it was a sign of new things to come I think um, for people when they heard that first recording so I think that stood out. In recent times many would have sort of obviously uh, heard some of the recordings that we've done with Silly Palladino. Um, that's had quite an impact. The band's ministry has been, uh, has flourished and given uh, uh, different opportunities through recordings with Silly. But yeah, so wonderful recordings. But the first one, I suspect, I suppose, stands out for me as being significant. Great. Um, so now your day job, you're the Territorial Director of Worship Arts now for the Salvation Army Correct. in Yep. Um, but before that, you were the director of music at Elton High School. During that time, you received the Prime Minister's Centenary Medal for Outstanding Leadership and Development in Music Education. So, congratulations, first of all, for that. A great accolade. My question Thanks. is, how do you apply that experience to your work now for the Salvation Army? Uh, certainly in my time at Eltham, uh, I loved working with young people. Uh, it was certainly where I felt my gifting was. 
Uh, and so to continue those opportunities to work with young people in my present role is something I really enjoy. Um, I think certainly uh, I was always one uh, in my music making with the schools um, to be striving for excellence as I endeavour to still in, in the music ministry that I have in the Salvation Army. Um, I, I think I, I always felt that I, I was keen to inspire and encourage people to be the best they could be. And so nowadays, I suppose I'm encouraging people to give of their best for him um, in music ministry. And perhaps this is more of a question uh, for a pre-lockdown scenario, but could you talk us through what a typical day in the life for the Director of Worship Arts would be? Yes, pre-lockdown uh, pre for sure uh, there, Matthew, which is we're in very different times at the moment. Um, but I suppose... Uh, and sort of planning and uh, planning events, planning uh, workshops and things like that that we might be able to do around the place in terms of uh, uh, encouraging our leaders was something I would do, working with other departments in collaborations uh, that we may have on the go. Um, but yeah, opportunity to really get alongside people, I suppose. Um, I really try to do that in encouraging them in their own ministry, in their own core, um, was certainly part of what I would have done. So I know that you and your department are working on lots of exciting projects at the moment um, for now and post lockdown. Um, but if you had to pick one thing that you're most proud of that you're working on currently, what would that be? Well, um, interesting enough, um, like uh, many territories across the army world, uh, we were planning our uh, annual creative arts camp just to start um, next week, actually. Um, so certainly we uh, had to sort of uh, consider what we, what will we do instead of that particular camp, um, and we um, certainly have decided we're going to we're heading into producing a virtual movie uh, musical, um, written by our team, uh, script and uh, songs. Um, we have about fifty young people signed up for uh, singing, dancing, acting. We've got an orchestra uh, for the show and all that sort of stuff. So we're, we've uh, gamely uh, suggested that we're going to put all this together virtually. I uh, have a great tech team lined up. So hopefully in a month or so's time, we may have come up with something pretty special and unique, I think, uh, in Salvation Army music making uh, around the world for sure. Fantastic. A really exciting project. And wish you all the best with that. Yeah. So now looking forward... Um, what's your vision for the future of the Melbourne Staff Band? Uh, I, I would hope that um, our ministry would really remain effective around the Territory. One of the roles, I think, uh, particularly of the band, is to encourage others in their ministry. So we, we would hope that visiting other corps would be certainly an encouragement uh, for other, other musicians. Um, I would certainly hope that we would continue to be relevant. Uh, in whatever context we find ourselves in. Uh, and I think possibly um, uh, I would think that maybe it's time to us to be even more intentional maybe in being mission-focused um, and being able to really get to people beyond the walls of the church, I think is something I think we need to really consider as a high priority for us in the future. Right. And then my final two uh, of the more serious questions to you, I'd like to ask uh, all of our guests... And they, they do prove to be quite challenging questions. But the first one is, if you had to pick a favourite Salvation Army composer, who would it be? 
it's yeah, that's a good one, isn't it, Matthew? Um, it's one of those things. It's sort of like having to choose which one is your most favourite child. And none of my four children would be pleased, you know, if I went down that track. Um, but yeah, it, there's some great composers. We're we're, we're gifted. We are very gifted in the Salish Army with with some wonderful musicians, and we all uh, think of people like uh, Eric Ball and Stedman Allen, and obviously mentioned earlier Norman Bearcroft. Um, I suppose for me, I suppose in my time as a musician, um, the influence of Robert Redhead I think has been fairly significant for me, um, and so would think that I've I've really enjoyed uh, his music. Uh, and the way he's presented it and certainly engaged uh, audiences uh, in brass band music in today's idiom. I think he's uh, certainly uh, kept the context, kept the, the quality of what brass band music making while we're still being relevant in what, uh, we, when we, what people want to hear today. And you mentioned that it's, it's as difficult as choosing a favourite child. Well, how's this for a question? If you had to choose a composer a uh, Salvation Army composer to be what your, one of your children, who would it be? <laughs> now that's that's an interesting one. Um, yeah, should I go with a young young fellow like Andrew Blythe? Um, I suppose it depends he, what your definition of young is. <laughs> <laughs> Relatively speaking, um, yeah, that, that's that's a that's probably one I'd probably leave to to, to others to consider that one. Favorite child. Yeah, I'm not too sure. Andrew would be a naughty little boy, I imagine, when he was younger, though. <laughs> a right handful. And um, just one more spin-off question. If you had to pick a favourite Australian composer, who would that be? Um, once again, I, I, we go through from people... You know, Gulledge was a, a composer that really set the scene for Australian uh compositions I think certainly uh, back in uh, the 30s and 40s um, going through obviously to uh, people like Noel Jones. Noel has been uh, a significant composer for us here in Australia. Howard Davies of recent times, Brian Hogg, Sam Creamer is probably the the um, the flavour of the month so to speak I think uh, as an Australian composer around the world but they're the sort of people I suppose that uh, I think have probably uh, stand out to me. Um, Sam's the naughty little boy, that's for sure. Uh, if you're looking for a naughty young composer, he's, he's the boy you'd go for. And narrowing it down even further, what's your favourite Salvation Army piece of music? For, for me, the, the piece that has come back time and time again to me, and it's interesting you're wearing your, your, your TMS 2013 uh, shirt because... Um, the present age was a piece of music that I used, I think, when I came to that camp. And that's a piece of music I've, I suppose, I've been a bit of a go-to piece for me um, as a conductor. Um, I find the music just wonderful. Um, but I think the, the power of the story, I think, is what really speaks to me. And, you know, I think, although written back in the 60s, um, telling the story of a young Christian trying to go out and win the world for God... Um, the um, and the challenges that that entailed in those days, the the story is still relevant today, and so we still have that uh, challenge for us as as Christians to be able to get in the world and and tell the story uh, as we as we can in our new idiom today. 
it's really interesting that you say the present age because all the way back on our first podcast when we had Dr. Stephen Cobb on the podcast, that was also his answer. And you were both um, commissioned as staff bandmasters in 1994 as well. So. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we, we travel the same roads. Um, I, I really value Stephen as a good friend and encourager. Uh, we we correspond and get online together uh, occasionally, and uh, enjoy spending time with Stephen. We can. He's been a, certainly a great encourager, and certainly his visits to uh, Australia have been well received. Um, and we we often talk about when we can get him out here next. Great stuff. Now we mentioned Andrew Blythe, and Andrew sent in a question for you. Oh yes. <laughs> now the question is, do you feel your brother Darren? has had a bigger influence on the history of the Melbourne staff band than you have? Now, that's that's a very interesting question. Typical, Andrew, to come up with that one. Um, Darren uh, has, I have to say, in my involvement in the staff band, obviously I joined in 79. I think Darren joined in 81, 82, I think. Um, but for many years, uh, prior to even me becoming the bandmaster, he's been the band secretary. Uh, so... He's one, been one of those guys behind the scenes that uh, people have really recognised for what they've contributed to the band. Um, for me as the bandmaster, I suppose, um, not, have, uh, not having Daryl as the secretary be like cutting off one of my arms. So is that, is that a good enough answer for Andrew? Yes, very significant. As much as me, though? Well, maybe not. <laughs> Great stuff. So this brings us on to our section of the podcast that I like to call the quirky quickfire questions. Quirky little questions to ranging all different subjects that we're going to just whiz through. So, of course, uh, being our Down Under special, it would be very remiss of us not to play on those Australian stereotypes for a few of these questions. My first question is, what's the best thing about living in Australia? The best thing is the, uh, the country. The countryside, the weather, generally speaking. Having said that, it's a, a chilly morning in Melbourne. The the beaches right around the country, certainly uh, well worth a, a visit. Certainly probably just probably got an edge on some of those uh, English beaches, that's for sure. Now, we, we know that you said you were Mr Melbourne, but leaving Australia, have you got a favourite city worldwide? Worldwide? Um, oh, I... I think certainly for me, um, I, I've enjoyed my visits both to the UK and US quite often. Um, love London and probably love uh, Los Angeles, I think. Probably two, two cities I've enjoyed uh, visiting, that's for sure. Great stuff. What leaves do koalas eat? They eat gum leaves. Oh, I thought it was eucalyptus, or is that the same thing? Yeah, same thing, same thing. Yeah. Great, so well, I'll give you a point there. <laughs> um, do you own a boomerang? Um, yes, uh, own a boomerang. Saturday mornings is my uh, recreation time. Usually get out in the backyard and uh, throw it around a bit. Um, as you'd appreciate, that, that boomerang does come back. Um, so yeah, I usually a bit of exercise out in the backyard with a boomerang on Saturday is, is my regular uh, sort of activity. Have you got a least favourite animal? A least favourite animal? Um, apart from the rodents and those sort of animals, I suppose the, uh, the, an animal that I'm probably most uncomfortable, the reptile is snakes. 
I'm not real comfortable around the snakes. I can give them a miss, that's for sure. Don't blame you there. Now, this is a, maybe a trickier question. If you were stuck in the outback and could only take three items, what would those three items be? Um, I need my water bottle. I'd take my water bottle with me. Um, I'd have to uh, maybe uh, take my bat on. I have to take my bat on with me. You just never know when a band might crop up out in the outback, be ready to conduct. Um, and I think I'd have to, um, just just a, a sleeping bag of some kind, I think. I'd be able to, water bottle, sleeping bag and bat on. I think would just do it for me, I think. And I reckon, you know, if, if you push came to shove and you were hungry and found some, some meat, you could skewer it on the bat on as well over a fire. So, do exactly. use um, exactly. What's your least favourite part of a platypus? <laughs> the, um, the tail. The tail. The tail, I think, yeah. Okay, okay. And in your opinion, what is the optimum amount of shrimps? Optimum amount of shrimps on the barbie? Uh, half a dozen shrimps on the barbie, perfect. And just to finish our, our interview tonight, uh, before we welcome Barry Gott, we've got a new segment that's going to take about two minutes, and it's called Didgeridoo or Didgeridon't. I've got a couple of statements for you, and you've got to answer either Didgeridoo or Didgeridon't. So, first one, Didgeridoo or Didgeridon't you like to cook? Didgeridoo. Like cricket? Didgeridoo. Think that tigers should be allowed as exotic pets. Did we don't agree with mixing savoury and sweet foods, for example, strawberry and basil sorbet? No, no, did we don't ever wonder what it'd be like to go to space? Did we do uh, get confused why the chemical symbol for gold is AU? Did we don't and uh, finally. Do you didgeridoo or didgeridon't you know what the atomic number for gold is? Didgeridon't. Oh, it's actually 79 there, so uh, Thank no problem you. that one. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Thank you ever so much, Ken. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast this evening and to hear um, all your experiences and your thoughts on yeah. army music making. If you stick around for now, we'll, we'll be putting you to the test in band mastermind at the end of the podcast, so be swatting up on your trivia. I will. Great stuff. So it now gives me a real pleasure to welcome Barry Gotts to the podcast. Barry, it's fantastic to have you here. And once again, thank you as well for getting up so early. Now, how disappointed are you that you didn't make it onto Ken's uh, list of favourite Australian composers? Oh, I don't know. You know, well, I'm an Englishman by birth, so probably I didn't rate. <laughs> oh, it must be right. <laughs> so um, you're going to be talking a bit about your piece, Light Walk, tonight. And um, I think it's fair to say that Lightwalk uh, marked a significant moment in the history of Salvation Army music making. It introduced this brand new swing genre into the Salvation Army band library. And I believe it was the first piece to have a published drum kit part. What would um, you say? Yeah, I'm not sure whether that's correct, but because well, in 1983, uh, Bill Himes's flugel solo, So Glad, was published. And uh, that was probably the real first um, swing item that appeared in the in the journal. Bit of a challenge for a lot of bands, though. 
oh, we'll, we'll have to get some fact checkers on that one. Apologies. <laughs> but what were the initial seeds of inspiration behind this iconic piece? Uh, good question. Um, in the 70s, I, I did some study at the Conservatorium in commercial music. And then by the late 70s, I was writing commercially in Sydney, um, uh, mainly for small Christian albums, and uh, which involved a lot of st styles. And, um, and also working in education. I was just teaching at school at the time and uh, had you know, small ensembles that we would play that sort of literature. So... Um, I guess I was already working in the, in the field, but there was no particular reason why uh, Lightwalk emerged. I, it, it came about um, on a holiday on the way back to Los Angeles from Australia, visiting family. And I just whistled or not, sung a little tune to my son on the way to dinner on our first night in Honolulu and said, what do you think of this tune? And uh, he said, I think you could do something with that there. So um, that's where it all started. And over the next three, I think three days, I sent the family to the beach and I stayed in the hotel room sketching out the piece. Which seems to happen with most of my things. I get a bright idea and then it seems to consume me. If it sticks, I work with it, you know. But that's the, the start of it. And uh, as also, I had to, I was going to Star Lake as the guest uh, conductor, and uh, I guess I, I had to take something with me to the camp that seemed appropriate at the time. Can you tell us a bit about the first performance of the piece? Uh, well, when, when it, we first brought it into the A band at, at Star Lake, uh, they just thought, it was just so totally different to everything else that had been out before. And uh, they really enjoyed it. They, and then when we performed it at uh, the concert at the camp, uh, they just went nuts. <laughs> Literally, they just you know, screamed and carried on, which was quite surprising for me. I've never had a reaction to my music like that before. <laughs> Great stuff. And um, the Salvation Army loves change, I say somewhat sarcastically. And I'm sure that there's some, some people out there may have thought that using a drum kit with Salvation Army band music was utter sacrilege. Um, but what sort of reception did you get to the piece? Was it overwhelmingly positive or was there some on the flip side of that? No, no, generally speaking, it was very, very positive. Um, the only negative comments I heard were, were uh, I think one person said to me, well, I... I, I was converted out of that field. I didn't expect the Salvation Army to sort of embrace it. But really, it's just another style of music. And as far as I was concerned, there was real ministry there if, if, if uh, we could attract people to the kingdom by using that idiom. I mean, I've been doing that for a long time. Uh, from the early 70s, I had a group uh, of musicians around Sydney. We, we played, you know, like a lot of core did in those days. Uh, like the Joy Strings in, in prior time, but we were doing popular music. I was influenced by the Manhattan Brass Project of Mark Free. And um, so I was really into um, that sort of expression and it just seemed to come naturally to me. You so, mentioned that. Uh, yeah. Apologies. Passing you yeah. off there, a bit of a delay, I think. 
Not bad for being the other side of the world, though. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So, you mentioned there a little bit about uh, your backgrounds working in the commercial music scene. How yeah. much um, did that impact your writing of Salvation Army music now? Well, I, I, I'm, I have a very eclectic taste in, in music. I mean, I trained as a classical trumpet player um, in addition to playing cornet in the Salvation Army. So, um, you know, I have a great love of, of, of classical music and I listen to a lot of it still. Um, I, uh, I'm a great lover of, of, of big band jazz. I listen to Gordon Goodwin's band, the modern big fat band these days and I find recordings on YouTube of Count Basie. Um, you know, I listen to Sammy Nestico's arrangements, Billy Byers. I, I, I try to, to keep the, the, the genre in my mind all the time. And I guess that's the, they're the influences that, that come about. I'm a great lover of brass bands, obviously being involved in them. And uh, I'm quite close to, to, to some of the, the leading players in both within them and out of the Salvation Army. So, um, you know, I love Eric Ball's music. I love listening to Journey into Freedom. I love The Kingdom Triumphant. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it just goes, on and on, you know, and I enjoy marches like, um, you know, like to Regent's Fair, we've just been paying tribute to Norman and it's just, it's, it's a joyfulness about the music that really impresses me. And focusing now in a bit more on, on the piece Lightwalk, I often yep. ask the composers that come on what their influences and, and often that go-to answer is another piece of Salvation Army music. But I guess at the time when you were writing this piece, this swing idiom didn't really exist within the Salvation Army so much. Yeah, so no, I guess no. you look outside um, the Salvation Army for some inspiration. Would you say there were some particular composers that influenced this piece directly? Well, in the style that I write, and, and you, uh, excuse me for a minute, that, that, in the style that I write, there's a, a particular formula that I use, um, which comes from, from, the, from the jazz world. You state the theme, you, you embellish it a second time, you introduce a, a solo element to it, an improvised element to it, and then um, there's a big shout chorus at the end. Uh, the only difference with me is that I try to incorporate a little chorus in the middle, if it fits. And usually, it usually fits as a counter melody to that first one. So, um, um, but the influences are largely uh, from the jazz riders, like, as I said, Sammy Nestico, um, who's been a great influence in to many of our composers around the world and um, and using his style and style of others going back to the big bands of the 30s and 40s and then you know through bebop and then into into the more modern area area so uh, they're the, they're my influences in, as far as jazz is concerned um, and then you know the, the other brass bands the marches and arrangements that I've done um, come from within the, uh, the band world, really. But arguably, at the moment, some of the Salvation Army's finest jazz and swing composers, I use those large umbrella terms, really, um, some of Salvation Army's composers are working in Australia right now. So I'd say yourself and Sam Cream are really at the forefront of that idiom. Um, why do you think that Australia is one of the hotspots for Salvation Army jazz and swing music right now? 
Well, that's a good question. Um, Sam has a, a, a big band that he called the Revelation Band, a big band that he uh, writes for and uh, has a ministry with. Uh, with sorry, with which he has a ministry, and um, and I guess that influences a lot that he does, and he's very uh, co he's very commercially aware, if I may put it that way, and he writes extremely well, and he's able to write for the smaller ensemble, and um, uh, as a lot, you know, they've been published, I guess first in Australia, then in the international journals, uh, he's done, he's extremely successful. Uh, we're good friends. Uh, I try to encourage him as much as I can. I hope I've been somewhat of a mentor for him. Um, in fact, we have a conversation later this afternoon uh, booked on Facebook. So, um, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot. Brian Hogg, for instance, in Melbourne, writes really well in that idiom as, uh, also. So um, I guess... We, We've just tried to make things a little different in this country, and we're fortunate to have the musicians um, to be able to to play it. So I don't think it's unusual for us, um, in particular. Um, I mean, you, you influence other people like Bill Himes, Jim Kerno, Stephen Buller, are all versed in that area extremely well, and we look to them for our inspiration as well. Great. It's nice to see how internationally everything connects and inspires each other. It's one of the great things about being a salvationist, Matthew. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's great that we can have this conversation today as well. <laughs> true, true. Now, it's often said that brass bands can't swing. Uh, now, that is certainly the case for some brass bands I've heard, but uh, won't be naming and shaming any of those. Although perhaps people that are, are watching this might want to pop, pop some names in the comments. Who am I to say? <laughs> um, but there are, on the flip side, some brass bands that really can swing as well. In my opinion, it's the articulation that brings this idiom music to life. And often in your pieces, like Lightwalk, they're heavily doused in articulation markings all the way through, much like any good big band child would be. Yeah. When you're sitting down and writing all these articulations, how do you make sure they sound and feel so natural when it's played? Well, within, within the jazz field, there's a certain um, a repertoire of articulations and interpretations of them. Um, and you would hope that when you write them, that the bandmasters do their study and uh, obviously do, do their homework prior to rehearsal. But as in, as you've just mentioned, in the education field and in the jazz field, those articulations uh, are put in there deliberately. Publishers are very, very... Uh, aware of style and uh, there are some differences from the legitimate field into the jazz field. Uh, the martellato is, a, is an, an example um, being, you know, it's literal thing being hammered or forced. Uh, you can put a martellato over a long note in the classical field, but you would never do it in the jazz field because it means to play short and hard. Uh, and so it has, um, you know, a particular emphasis. So that you, you try to say, right, what's long, what's short, uh, and how you interpret it. You know, the, the triplet feel, you know, two quavers feels like a, a, a crotchet and quaver in a triplet feel. And uh, you expect people, when you say easy swing or bright swing or whatever it would be, that the idiom would carry forward and therefore the articulations match. 
Great stuff. And Lightwalk contains a large flugelhorn solo in it. Was this written with a particular soloist in mind? Or if not, why did you choose to feature the flugelhorn? I think there are two, two, two influences that uh, I like jazz flugelhorn. I like Clark Terry's work. Um, Bill Himes had written So Glad before, and I thought that solo was quite uh, influential. Uh, it seemed to be, for no apparent reason, uh, that the flugelhorn would be, have a, a smoother sort of approach to it. I mean, it's been played by every corner player in the world as well, but um, yeah, because uh, sometimes the flugel player doesn't feel capable, uh, or there are other people who who, who quite who uh, are quite capable of doing it. Uh, the first solo is actually with I played it on corner at Star Lake, uh, like a big band leader turning around, you know, Harry James sort of thing. I thought that was probably at the time the right thing to do. Although I look back at it now, I thought it might have been a little arrogant. But then, again, um, but then again, it was the first performance, so you know, yeah, it seemed to be the uh, the appropriate thing to do. But the flugelhorn has a lovely sound, and uh, and it seems to to work in that context. Now, uh, quite a personal question for you, but Lightwalk's been performed regularly now for the last uh, quite a few years, uh, all around the globe. But have you got a particular favourite performance or recording that you've heard to of the piece? It's a bit like the question you gave to uh, to uh, Ken earlier on. <laughs> what are your favourite kids? <laughs> um, uh, there, there have been several. Uh, I think the initial performance that the staff band did when it was first performed in public, Robert Foster's one, that that uh, that, that was an important performance. Uh, there, I said, there, there are many. The Melbourne Staff Band with James Morrison's a great performance. Uh, Montclair with uh, Winton Marcellus is another one. Um, when I was at Pasadena Tabernacle, John Doctor always did a fa fabulous solo there. Um, and there's a, a couple of recordings. Uh, one band in Japan, uh, Osaka Concert Brass, does a, a really nice job. And then a Belgian band that had recorded, it's at a miraculous speed, but it, it really is quite tight and uh, quite effective. So, you know, there are, there are a number of them. I mean, there's so many now. Um, that, that have come across my desk and uh, people have sent performances of them. Some of them are brilliant, others not so, but uh, they're all enthusiastic, so that's all one can ask. Great stuff. And uh, we're now going to listen to a recording of, of Light Walk All The Way Through, and the recording we've chosen is the uh, performance of the Melbourne Staff Band with James Morrison. An amazing recording it is. And <laughs> um, after this uh, Usually, if we were live, we would invite both you and Ken uh, to have some questions in the comments. However, obviously, as we're not live, that's not going to be possible. So perhaps uh, I could ask a question for you both to answer afterwards of um, just telling us a bit about this performance from Ken, what it was like to work with James Morrison and, uh, and Barry, what it was like to hear your music played by such a soloist. So we'll have a listen to the piece first and then perhaps uh, you could answer that together. Sure.
scintillating performance amazing stuff so uh, as i said to that, that question i open up to you both i don't mind who wants to answer first but what was that performance like for us i have to say barry that was quick yeah, absolutely quick <laughs> did we did we play it that quick um it, yeah it was a great night it was a fantastic concert it was in sydney actually uh the concert at sydney congress hall um i have to say um one of the things that I do remember, um, very and, and uh, Barry knows James very well, very unassuming sort of guy. Um, yes. And you you would you'd he'd walk in, uh, you would have barely any rehearsal. You wouldn't uh, basically you wouldn't you'd barely run through things. Uh, he'd have a quick little look through something, and what you got in the rehearsal was nothing like what he actually produced for you in a performance. Yeah. It was amazing. But a really top guy, a really top yeah, guy. To absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Jane, I mean, it's been my privilege to work with James in a professional capacity as well. And um, he, he's just, as I say, such an unassuming guy. He has an amazing mind. I mean, he, 
he finds his own playing, he does all sorts of different things, but his music is just always spontaneous, it's always interesting, it's always lyrical, and uh, to hear that solo is just amazing, it really is. Fantastic, thank you ever so much. So that brings yeah. us on to our very final, uh, very final, final segment of our podcast here, and that is, of course, Band Mastermind. So for those that haven't heard the podcast before, you'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band trivia questions correctly as you can. Uh, before we launch into the game, let's just have a quick look at the leaderboard. Ken, where would you like to come here on this leaderboard? Oh, as long as I can get above uh, John Lamb, I'll be doing okay, I think, won't I? Absolutely. Well, let, let's see. Let's see. We'll put you to the test. So, one minute and 30 seconds. Your time starts now. Hymn for Diana, published by, uh, in the Triumphonic Collection, was written by whom? Joseph Turin. Correct. What decade was the Unity series started? Uh, the 60s? Very close, but unfortunately not. Norway's territorial music department is located in which city? Oslo. Correct. Which march was written for the 75th anniversary of the Chicago Star Band? Milestone. Correct. Uh, the tune, hymn tune, Churchbury, is named that because? Uh, was uh, the, the name of the street that Enfield Corps was in. Correct. Who had uh, was was the shortest stint of the international staff bandmaster role? Shortest. Yep. Uh, no, don't know that one. Okay, we'll move on. Um, why would you wear dem golden slippers? Wear them golden slippers. No, sorry, haven't got that one. Okay, no worries, we'll pass on that one. Uh, what piece of music did Bill Himes write for his wife? Uh, all That I Am? Uh, it was, I, should, I should clarify, write for his wife to walk down uh, the altar for her wedding. Apologies, I didn't quite read all of that last question. Probably a crucial part of information, but I'll give that one to you. So... Let's toss up your score. You got a total of one, two, three, four, five questions right. We'll just go through the ones that you didn't quite get. Uh, the decade that the Unity series started was the 1950s. You're very, very close to the 1960s because it was, in fact, in 1957. Um, the shortest stint of ISB Bandmaster was Bramwell Coles. And why would you wear dem golden slippers? You could have had either the song lyrics because they look so neat or to walk down the Golden Street. So well done, uh, a really good score there. Um, we'll get your name on that leaderboard as soon as possible. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Once again, apologies for the technical difficulties. Sometimes these things happen, but at least we had a plan B. So a real thank you to Ken for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And, thank you, uh, and thanks also to Barry Gott as well for your time talking about your piece been a real pleasure talking to you both and uh and uh, we'll let you go back to bed now <laughs> <laughs> good on you thanks matthew
Great, so all that leaves me to say is good night and God bless. Thank you.